0: So this evening, as we continue studying through the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter number 4, and there's, there's a lot of truth in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and so we're going to be reading a little, talking a little, reading a little, talking a little, and then we've got some points to look at this evening. But in, in Ecclesiastes 4, Solomon has some major issues with God. And he talks about them and addresses them because he understands that if Solomon has these issues with God, then there's probably some of us who also have these issues with God. And so he he tells us what his problem is, and then he explains to us how we're supposed to survive these problems. So start looking in Ecclesiastes 4, starting at verse number 1. So I returned and considered all the oppression that are done under the sun and behold the tears of such as were oppressed and they had no comforter and on the side of their oppressors that was there was power but they had no comforter wherefore i praise the dead which are already dead more than the living which are yet alive yea better is he that both better is he than both they which hath not yet been who hath not seen the evil work that is done ...under the sun. Several months ago I was reading an article in a magazine called Christianity Today. Now, Christianity Today is a magazine put out by pastors for pastors. And I was reading an article about a pastor in Michigan who held in his community what is called a doubt night. And what they did was they sent out thousands of, of mailers and flyers in the community... They advertised on TV, they advertised on the radio, they advertised on Facebook, and what they, they told everyone was, we understand there's a lot of questions regarding God and the Bible and Christianity, so what we want you to do, we want you to come to this night and we'll have the pastor on the stage and he'll sit there on stage with a microphone and you can ask any question you want to ask and we will stay there as long as we need to to answer your questions to make sure everyone understands what the Bible really says about some some rather difficult issues. And so they have this doubt night, and they, they gather together, and the first question was, comes from a woman in her 20s. She grabs the microphone. She comes down to the, the front of the auditorium with the microphone, and she looks at the pastor and says, I'm afraid that God will never forgive me because I can't forgive the man who raped me when I was 15. How do I deal with that? And I just, I'm reading this, and as a pastor, I'm thinking... How do you answer that question? How, how, do you, how do you answer someone who's been hurt so severely that they're having trouble comprehending that God still loves them or God can still forgive them? Now, the, the the article never said how the pastor answered that question. I wish it would have, but it never got into, well, here's what he said. They were just talking about how they engaged the community. He probably just said, well, this was a bad idea. We'll see all folks Sunday and left. That's what I would have done. Like, uh-oh. But it got me to thinking. As a pastor, uh, I'm faced with some, some difficult problems, some difficult questions. In my seven and a half, seven and a half years of pastoring, uh, I get to see the reality of the hurt that people go through. I get to see people at their absolute worst. I get to see people who have been horribly dealt with by other people, and they're, they're coming to me for answers. And they're saying, you're a pastor, how do I deal with this? I've, I've dealt with folks in our church. I've had people email me or call me who aren't even part of my church or part of any church. Just call and say, this, this terrible thing happened. How do I deal with it? And oftentimes, I just I struggle with, I, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. You know, I've had questions. People call me or email me. My husband left me with my three kids. How, how do I glorify God through this? I just, I, I don't know. I don't know how to deal with it. I was, I was abused as a child. How, how has God used that for good? And You look at him and say, I just, I, I can't tell you, but I know he will. Or I've got this sin I struggle with, and I have I go to God every day, and I, I beg God to help me conquer it. No matter how I try hard I try to conquer it, no matter how much I read my Bible, no matter how much I pray, I just, I can't conquer this thing, and I'm, I'm dragged back into this besetting sin time and time again, and I struggle with it. And how come God won't just answer my prayer? In. What is he doing in my life where I continue to struggle even when I don't want to? And I just have to look at him and say, I just, I don't know. And what do you tell him? Keep praying? Keep reading your Bible. You've been doing it and it's not working. Keep it up. And that's what Solomon is dealing with. That's that's his problem. He is frustrated with all the pain that he sees. He is frustrated with the, all the oppression that he sees. And he's looking at God and saying, God, you say you love us. You say you're forced. You say you're our father. But why do you allow this, these, this pain that seems meaningless? Why do you allow these things to happen in our lives? He even goes, those who, who have the authority and the ability to help, they, they can't help. They're helpless. So what's the point of authority and power if you can't do anything to stop the oppression? People come to me with these huge issues because I'm the pastor, and they think I have answers, and, and, and I don't. And that's what Solomon's dealing with. God, people come to me with these problems, and I'm the, I'm the king, and I just I don't know what to do. I don't know how to answer them. And it's frustrating to have people come to you looking for you to make sense of these horrible things, and you just you can't make sense of it. That's why, that's why I hate preachers who preach sermons like four steps to absolute peace four steps to conquer doubt. Well, what if you do those four things and you still have doubt? Then you feel like a loser. I did A, B, C, D. I did all four points that the pastor said and I still have doubt. I still struggle with these things. So either I'm, I'm a Christian loser or this guy's a liar to me. And then you, you go to the Christian books and you pick up the book, My best, Your Best Life Now. And you're like, if this is the best my life gets, what's the point? Why do I even continue going on? Solomon is saying, sometimes there are no easy answers to the difficult questions of life. There's hurt, there's pain, there's sorrow, there's oppression. And sometimes we just don't know why. And that bothers him because he wants to know why. He wants God to tell. And here's the thing, he's okay with the pain, if you understood the why. God, I'm fine with the oppression if you'll just tell me what the purpose of it is. But God, there, there seems to be no purpose to these things. So the first problem he has is he has an issue with God, but he has a second problem with, uh, it, that he gets to, and his second problem is with humanity. He looks at God and says, God, there's all this oppression, all this pain, and there, there seems to be no point to it. And I don't understand that. And that bothers me. But then, Lord, I look at humanity, and I think, they're all messed up anyway. They're all broken anyway. Look at verse number 4. Again, I considered all travail in every right work. And for this, a man is envied of his neighbor. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. Well, here's what he's saying here. He's saying the clothes that you are wearing tonight, you are not wearing them because you needed them. You are wearing them because you wanted your neighbor to see you in them. The car you drive, you're not driving that car because you need that car. I'm not saying you don't need a car. You need a car. But the car you're driving, you're not driving it because you needed that car. You're driving it because you want your neighbor to see you in that car. We do things because we want people to see us. We want to be the the center of attention. At the center of our hearts... We want to be noticed. We want everyone to focus on us. And you know this is true. And you know how you know this is true? Because a lot of you here love drinking Starbucks coffee. Now, you don't like Starbucks coffee because Starbucks coffee is terrible. And you can get just as good a frappuccino at Sheets. You know why you drink Starbucks coffee? Because you want people to see you drink Starbucks coffee. You know why I have an iPhone? Now, I know David doesn't because he doesn't care. You know why I have an iPhone because I want people to see me have an iPhone. Although now... The Ecclestones have better iPhones. So now I need a better iPhone. I need a gold plated iPhone. But that's what he's saying. He goes, The things you have, you have Apple iPhones, you have the iWatch, the Apple Watch, you have the, the things you have, you don't have them because you need them. You have them because you want people to see you have them. You want people to look at you and think, Wow, look at what they're drinking. They drink Starbucks. Ooh. Folgers, well, now Folgers is terrible. But uh, a Maxwell House? No, Maxwell House is terrible. Folgers is good. I like Folgers. I hate Maxwell House. Maxwell House is garbage, but Folgers is good. I can make just as good a cup of coffee, a better cup of coffee, at home for thirty cents that so I can get at Starbucks for seven bucks. But I want people to see me drinking that seven buck coffee. Actually, I don't. I hate Starbucks. I don't drink it. But that's the purpose of our heart. He's saying you do things because you want people to see you. And so we want things that others won't, and that's Solomon's problem. He goes, how can you handle life on earth when there's pain and oppression and everything seems to be falling apart and no one is genuine or no one cares for anyone else? Everyone just wants to stand at the center of their own universe. And he he continues on, and he goes, when we notice these things, because a lot of times we'll notice these problems. He says, when you notice these things, people tend to two different answers to it. Here's the first one. Look at verse number 5. The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Better is a handful with quietness than both hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. He goes, the first thing that people do when they, they see the oppression and the, the seemingly meaninglessness of it, When they see the greed of everyone in the the world, when they see people just want to be the center of attention and God doesn't seem to be doing anything right anyway, the first thing they tend to do is they say, there is no God, there is no real answer, so they give up and live for themselves. Because if there's no one to answer to, why even try? That's the first thing people do. Now, we're, we're Christians. We don't do that, right? Here's the second thing people do. Look at verse number seven. Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone, and there is not a second. Yea, he that neither child nor brother, yet there is no end of all his labor. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither saith he for whom do do I labor and bereave my soul of good. This also is vanity, yea, and is a sore travail. The second thing people do when they see the oppression and the pain and the meaninglessness of it all, when they see people want to be in the center of their universe, the second thing they do is they bury their head in their ministry or their work or their hobbies or whatever it takes to distract them from the pain of life. They ignore the problem because they don't want to deal with their own brokenness and their own fallen state, so we put on blinders to everything around us. Say, I'm just going to focus on what I'm doing and not worry about everything around me. Solomon sees this, and he realizes God has another plan for us to survive the brokenness and the pain of life. God has another plan that beats foot in our arms and saying, well, there is no God. God has a better plan that beats us burying our head in the sand and saying, I'm just going to ignore everything else and focus on what I'm doing. Look at Ecclesiastes, verse, look at the chapter number, nine, uh, verse number 9. Two are better than one. This is, most of you are going to recognize these verses. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So here's what Solomon's saying. The world is broken. And and anyone who doesn't understand that, Anyone who doesn't immediately say that's right hasn't lived long enough to notice it. They're, they're out in the back with Miss April in the, in the nursery. They don't understand the world's broken. If you've lived any amount of time, you understand the world is a mess. People are broken. People are hurting. And hurting people hurt other people. So, how, and so most of us, we've tasted it. We've felt it. We have been wounded by some self-absorbed, Self-seeking person. And here's what Solomon's saying. He goes, in the middle of all this pain, in the middle of all this oppression, in the middle of all this brokenness, we need each other. With Christ at the center, we need community. We need other believers. We need each other. He says we need each other because when there are two of us, there's a better return on our work. Look at verse number uh, nine. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. He goes, when you when you have more than one person, you got two people, your you, your work's easier. You don't believe that? Move by yourself. It. You ever move by yourself? I've done it. It stinks. You ever move with other people? Have help with you. It's a lot easier. You get four or five or six or seven people out there to help you unload the truck, man. It goes just just like lickety split. You do it on your own, and it is exhausting. It is tiring. It is, and you you're, you're just want you, to, just want to give up because it's so hard. But because you got more people helping you, it's better return on your work. Two are better than one. You ever tried to heal your, your brokenness on your own? You can't do it. You ever tried to conquer that besetting sin on your own? You can't do it. Scripturally, Solomon does, and the Bible tells us this time and time and time again. We Need each other. Yeah, we need an intimate, personal relationship with God. But we also need intimate, personal relationships with other believers. We need each other. The thing that keeps leading you back, the sin that keeps leading you back to the same garbage over and over again that can beat you and destroy you, you need someone else to help you. Solomon is telling us that Christ gave us other believers To come along beside us and help us carry the load. That's why community is so important. If we do life together, he says you'll be picked up at the point of falling. But if you're alone and you fall, you're stuck there by yourself. Here's what else he says. He goes, if you have other people helping you, they can help point out your blind spots. Here's the thing about blind spots, and man, it's, it's life-changing. You can't see your blind spot. That's why it's a blind spot. You can't see it, but someone else can. Someone else can come to you and say, hey, there, there's this. you may want to be careful about that. You may want to watch out for this. I, I've noticed this, and it's, it may not be a problem now, but it, but it could be. We need other believers in love to point out our our shortcomings, to point out our blind spots. And we are to thank God for men and women who love us enough to point out the problems we have in our life, to point out our weaknesses. And here's the problem. Too few of us have friends like that. Not enough of us have friends in our life who love us enough And love God enough and in love can come to us and say, hey, this this is something you may want to watch out for. This is something that you may want to be careful of. And we need them. But our pride doesn't let us have them. But Solomon says, this world's a mess. This world's broken. And the only way you're going to survive is to go through it with other believers. We have to have others help us. Then he talks about helping other people, helping us keep each other warm. Now, he's not saying about, you know, if you get cold, cuddle up under a blanket with your, with your sweetheart. There's nothing wrong with that. Why do you think I keep the temperature so low in here? He's not saying there's, no, there's nothing wrong with if you're cold, snuggled enough to keep warm with your spouse, someone that you're biblically allowed to snuggle up with. He's not saying anything wrong with that. But when you think of cold, what do you think of? think of winter. How many of you honestly love winter? Not Christmas, you love winter. You people need to get saved. Simple as that. when you think of winter, you think of cold, think of darkness, think of death. Winter kills off everything. Winter, winter kills your joy. Winter makes you want to stay inside and huddle down and not go outside. Winter is terrible you know on facebook i was you know they do these things sometimes like one of them has to go forever and they you know one of them was seasons like one season has to go forever which one i'm like winter gone by winter see you never again i'd be fine if it was 72 degrees all year long i'd be fine with that because winter is terrible it's life draining and here's what solomon's saying winter is coming to your life We're going to go through a time of winter where it's dark and it's cold and it seems like everything is dying. And we're in that winter stage of life. We need someone to help us. We need someone to encourage us, to strengthen us, to to warm us up so we can continue to go on. He's saying that if there's two of us, we'll be able to stand if someone attacks us. What he's telling us is there is safety In numbers. And honestly, this is probably nothing new to most of us here tonight. Most of us probably, we probably understand this. We know this theologically, we know this practically, we understand that. We, we all know this. We've been called as believers to do life together. We've been called as believers to walk together, to know each other, to confess our sins one to another, to challenge one another, to grow one another. So the question is, if Solomon says we need each other, if Solomon says we need friends and believers and people who will come alongside of us and help us when we fall and protect us when we're attacked and help us get through the difficult times of life and point out our shortcomings, if the Bible tells us time and time again, we need need friends that can challenge us. How come so many of us don't have them? How come there are so many believers that feel all alone? That feel like no one knows what I'm going through. and No one can help me. So why even bother? I've been there. And if you're honest, you've been there. Where you felt like there's no one to help me. There's no one who cares about me. And Solomon, in these verses, he gives four enemies to community in your life. He gives four reasons that we don't have the community we're supposed to have. We don't have the friends we're supposed to have to help us get through the difficulties of life. We're going to look at them tonight. Here's the first enemy. Jealousy. Look again at verse number four. Again... I considered all travail and every right work that for this man is envied of his neighbor. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. Have you ever found yourself at some quiet, deep part of your soul celebrating someone else's failures? No, I mean neither. Yeah, you have. You ever had somebody tailgating you? they zoom past you and a couple miles down the road you see them pulled over and you think gotcha that's what I'm talking about now that's that's okay they had it coming I get it but another believer you ever find yourself someone stumble or fall or someone messes up and you you don't publicly say yeah but you kind of secretly think good they need to be brought down a notch they need to be humbled a little bit there's that maybe that there's that guy at your job there's that person in your life that stumbled and fell and it was a weird part of you that was just like, I'm okay with that. Or how about this? There's someone ever gotten on your nerves because of how good their life is going? Just everything seems to be going great for me. You're like, I just I hate that guy. Why? I don't know. I just I hate him. He's always happy. He's always getting everything he wants. I, just, I hate that guy. You know, we may not public, it, but if, your, if you're honest with yourself, if you're honest with yourself, We've had times like that where we rejoice in someone's pain and we get angry at the success of someone else. Jealousy will always derail any chance you have of having a deep, meaningful, intimate relationship with other believers. Jealousy is believing you deserve what God chose to give to someone else And that keeps you from doing what Christ has called you to do. And as a believer, Christ has called you to rejoice when other believers rejoice and to mourn when other believers mourn. And when we're jealous of another believer, we can't honestly rejoice with them. Now, we may act like we're rejoicing, but we're we're putting on a mask. We're faking it. We may act like we're mourning when they're hurt, but we're just, we're faking it. And when you start faking things like that, you've lost all chance of of having any kind of intimate relationship. You only get to a certain level because you have to pretend, and when you have to pretend that you're happy, that someone got the promotion, when you have to pretend that you're wounded, that they finally blew it, then you're wearing a mask, and you have no chance of intimacy with another believer. Pretending is devastating to God's people. Jealousy over other believers will kill you and will kill any chance of community. Second killer of community, points out, is laziness. Look at verse number five. The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. You know, when, when young couples get married, and me and April are the same way, when young couples get married, they think they can fulfill every need the, their spouse has. You can't. Just letting you know that like, well, if I'm, if I'm romantic enough and if I'm happy enough and if I listen enough and I try enough and I'm good enough, then I can meet all their spiritual and, and needs and I can do everything for them and I can be all they need, and that's just not the case. Why? Because they have a whole that is shaped for eternity, and you're not eternal. They need God more than they need you. I can care for April. I can say the right things. I can try to understand all I can do, but I am still not enough for her. Through our marriage, I have watched her struggle through some difficult times that I was completely powerless to help her with. Several years ago, and she's she's been open about this, and talked about this, and written about this, and so I don't. I asked her permission if I could talk about this, and she's like, "Well, you ask your wife permission. You're married. You understand that." But several years ago, she went through a deep depression, and she she'd come to me, crying, "You're my pastor." Help me. I couldn't help her. Rejoice in the Lord just wasn't cutting it. And she'd come to me and just, just, what am I supposed to do? You're my pastor. You're supposed to know the Bible. You're supposed to help me. How am I supposed to get over this? And I was just, I had to look at her and say, honey, I I don't know how to fix you. I don't know how to help you. I I was powerless to help. She uh, she got alone with God and she was able to to conquer that and come out better for it. But after that came the anxiety. I would have, I would have taken the depression over the anxiety any day. The anxiety almost drove me out of the ministry. Because I was finally like, I'm going to quit. I can't deal with this. I'm just going to quit and be done with it. Because I, I was powerless to help her. And I, I thought about giving up on her. thought about giving up on the ministry. thought about giving up on everything and saying, I just can't deal with this. I was at the point where I'm like, God, this makes no sense to me. I'm done with it. But we, we stuck it out. We push through, we work through it. Why am I telling you that? Because intimacy, relationships, takes work. A good marriage takes work. Brother McCormick, how long were you married? Seventy and a half years. A half years. You know what that took? Work. These so we've got so many couples in here that have been married 50, 60, 70 years. Y'all just said, uh, 60 years? No, where Danny and them. Trudy, 60 years this weekend, right? 60 years. You know what it takes for Miss Trudy to stay married to him for that long? It takes work. You cannot be lazy and expect intimate relationships. You've got to work at them. No one stumbles into it. It has to be worked for. It has to be fought for. Has to be wrestled over and paid for. Lazy people never know true intimacy because they are life sucking humans who require other people to feed them. And when other people get sick of feeding them, they have to feed themselves and they starve to death spiritually. Jealousy and laziness will kill community. Here's the fourth, the third killer of community dissatisfaction. Look at verse number six. Better is a handful with quietness than both hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. If you are always looking for the future, you're missing what God has for you right now. And too many people in this room I've spoken to are looking for the future and they're missing what what God is doing in their answer, in their life, right where they are. If you're always, when this happens, when, when I get this, when, when this occurs, when this stops, when this quits, when this stops being an issue, when this starts, when I get this job, when I move here, I can't wait until, I can't wait till I graduate, I can't wait till I get my car, when I finally get that promotion, when I, when I, when I, when I. If you're always looking for the future, you are missing what God has for you today. And too many believers miss community because they're living in tomorrow. And if you miss, if you're always in tomorrow, you never are where you're supposed to be. And here's the thing about tomorrow: it's always there. When you finally get what you're waiting for, you're gonna want something else. When I get that promotion, you get that promotion, oh, when I get this next promotion, when I get this house, when I get this car, when I get this job, when I get, when I get, when I get. We're always living. In the future, people who are dissatisfied they suck the life out of other people because they are always looking around for the reason they're dissatisfied and they point to a person. I'm not happy because you are holding me back. I'm not where I should be because of you. They tend to blame other people for their dissatisfaction. Look, I, I hurt for you who are stuck looking for your better day tomorrow that you miss how good God is to you today. You're so focused on what you want to happen, you miss all the blessings God has for you right now. Jealousy, laziness, dissatisfaction will kill community. Here's the fourth killer of community Solomon talks about. Work. Work is the enemy of, of genuine community. Now, some of you are thinking, "Great, I'm quitting tomorrow, preacher." Not what I mean. Not what I'm talking about. Several years ago, the Wall Street Journal did a, a study to figure out who were the happiest people in America. And they they took several years to do this study. They 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 examined several people's lives and asked them all the same questions. And they they finally, after several years of research and study, they came to this conclusion: the happiest people. Are the, aren't, are, the, are the happiest people are not the ones who spend their time, energy, and money trying to get new things. You know what happens when you get a new thing? You spend all your time, all your money, all your energy trying to get that new thing. You know what happens? You need the next new thing. You know what happens when you try to you spend all your time getting the, the iPhone 7? You know what happens? Someone gets the iPhone XLR or whatever that is. The, the iPhone 27.5, whatever they get. You spend on and look, I got the brand, and you know what? They got the brand newest phone. You know what? Next, there's going to be another phone. And it's obsolete. When you spend all your time, energy, money trying to get the nicest car so everyone in your neighborhood sees how nice a car you are, eventually your neighbor gets another, a nicer car. And now he's the center of attention. you got to work hard to get the new. So you're, you're never happy because you need new stuff. They concluded the happiest people are those who spend their time their money, and their energy to strengthen and increase relationships. They don't buy the fanciest car. They buy a cheaper car, take the money they saved, and go on a vacation with their family and make memories. And they enjoy experiences over stuff. The Wall Street Journal just agreed with Solomon. Solomon says, who's the happiest? Those people who aren't chasing after the wind. I'm going to make some of you kids angry right now, and I don't want you to be too mad at me, but Christmas is coming. Your kids are going to give you parents some lists about things they want, or things they want Santa to bring them. Our kids have done it. Connor, his list is very, very short. Lexi's is, she's like, I want 27 things. I'm like, hey, it's good to have wants, <laughs> You're not so young, your wants won't hurt you. Too bad about that. But you know, they, they come up with these lists of things that they want. And here's, here's what I'm going to tell you. Your kids, they don't need the newest Xbox. They don't need a fancy TV. They don't need the newest phone. They don't need the fastest computer. They don't need a, an expensive car. You know what they need? They need you. Maybe it's not a good idea to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week to give your kids everything they want because then they grow up and they don't have you. Your kids need you. Because the stuff's going to fade. And you know it's true. You, They want that brand new video game system. You're going to spend $800 on it. They're going to play it for three weeks and then forget about it. You know I know that? Because mine do it. They spend more time with a box than they do the toy. I'm like, I bought the toy. I was just, next time I'm just going to go to the trash behind the store and get you a box. They don't, the stuff fades. They forget about it. They don't care about it. So here's an idea. Instead of spending all your money on things they're going to forget about, spend it on building relationships with them. Spend it on time. Spend it on vacations. Spend it on trips. Spend it on building memories. Here, and I, don't, I know Connor's in here, so I'm going to spoil a present, but they already knew about it. One of the, one, you know, we always get a family present. Family gets a present every year, and it's been a TV before. It's been an Xbox before. It was a trampoline before. And after the trampoline, it was a broken ankle. And so we all have these family gifts. You know what this year's family gift is? Season tickets to Bush Gardens. Why? So we can spend time together. Because long after they don't care about the, the toy they got, they're going to remember those memories of mom and dad taking us and spending time with us. Maybe this year when you're, you know, and your kids, look, they're going to throw a fit when they open up a box and say, I didn't get Legos. I got a, a trip to Smith Mountain Lake. What's up with that? but they'll appreciate it one day. Make memories instead of trying to get stuff. Spend time together because long after the trip is over, the relationship is still strong and the memories last. Work, working so hard to get all the new stuff will kill any chance you have an in intimacy in the church and in your relationship. You know, Time and time again, I've read about or talked to marriages who split up because they drifted apart because the husband spent so much time working to provide the wife a beautiful home and a beautiful car and a bunch of nice stuff, and you know what the wife wanted? She wanted her husband home. She wanted to snuggle up on the couch and say, hey, two make our warm together. But he was, i got to work because i got to get you that new house. Maybe get a smaller house and spend some time together because work will kill community jealousy laziness dissatisfaction and work are enemies to community and are enemies to lasting intimate fulfilling relationships so how do we how do we address them how do we deal with this how do we overcome these things how do we get these kinds of relationships How do we get the type of community that Solomon is talking about? The kind of community that can save us from falling into sin, that can sustain us when winter gets here. There's nothing I can say or give you, and I'm not going to give you four points to community because I just said I can't do that. But I can point you in a direction. I can point you in a direction and say, if you start walking this way, it'll happen eventually. When? I don't know. could be a month. could be a year could be 10 years. How do we know? We'll wait 10 years and find out. But if you start going this way, it'll happen. The direction I'm going to point you to is towards Jesus and towards other believers. You start walking towards God. You start walking towards other believers. Here's the thing. Too many of us, when winter comes, we hibernate by ourselves. Can't do that. When you want to stay home and say, "No one understands me anyway," that's when you need to get yourself to other believers. So here's what I'm saying: you can come to everything the church has to offer for you. We got a baby shower coming up. So I don't even know though. I don't even know Miss Whitney. I don't care. It's community. You can be with other believers and get to know them and start building relationships with them. We got Bible studies coming up. And look, ladies, y'all are better at it than, than men are. Y'all, ladies, honestly. Y'all are better at at this than we are. Us men, we're men. Men deal with it themselves. No, stupid men do. But men, why can handle this? No, you can't. Here's the thing. Solomon says, no, you can't, dude. You can't handle this. So we got men's Bible study coming up. You know what? Come to the Bible studies. Start getting involved. Come to the prayer times. Come to the fellowships we have. Come to everything we have. Start helping in Awana. Join Bible studies. Join prayer groups. Join the Christmas parties. Whenever something is going on in the house of God, be a part of it and start building those relationships. Because the days are going to come, you're going to need other believers to help hold you up. To point out, hey, I think there's an issue in your life. To sustain you and keep you warm when winter comes. We need to walk with other. And Paul said this with Timothy. He said, hey, follow me as I follow Jesus. You know what Paul was saying to Timothy? Just walk with me as I follow God. Just do life with me. Just come along beside me and we'll fellowship again. You know what, some of us, some of you, and I need to be better at it too, but some of you older folks need to do it, and some of us older Christians, we need to come along beside some of these younger Christians and say, hey, why don't you come have, have coffee with me? Come have a, you know, a sweet tea if they don't drink coffee. Don't take them to Starbucks. Take them to Dunkin' Donuts. It's better anyway. But, hey, why don't you come, why don't you come, just, just come walk with it. Come talk, come have, come, come have dinner. At my house. Some of you older couples, man, I wish you would get some of these younger couples to say, hey, why don't you come have dinner with us? Because they're going to be able to look at you one day and say, our marriage seems to be falling apart, and you made it 60 years. How did you do it? You can tell them. Drugs, I don't know what you, what you did. But you can tell them it takes work. It takes not giving up no matter what. You know, the problem with, with our this generation is the greatest generation, the older generation, they took till death do its part seriously. It was, we're going to get through this until one of us dies. I may kill you, but we made a covenant. Too many people now, it's like, well, it's until I get tired of it, then I'll just go get a divorce. We just give up too easy. We need to stick it out. We need community to help us so let's stop being lazy stop being jealous stop being so dissatisfied and stop working so hard for stuff that's not gonna last anyway and focus on a relationship with god and a relationship with other believers because here's what solomon's saying we need each other we need each other let's pray heavenly father